This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, have you ever found yourself in the middle of something and thought, you know what, this would be a whole lot easier and more enjoyable if I just knew how it ends? Like, if you knew it was going to end well, you, you could breathe easier, you could enjoy the moment more. And, and if you knew it wasn't going to end well, at least you could prepare yourself for what was to come. For example, um, before I will even watch the first episode of a new show, first off, I wait until the whole season or series is done. Uh, but then before, I go and I check the ratings of each episode on IMDb, and, and especially the first episode and, and the last episode. Now, for those of you that don't know what IMDb is, it's Internet Movie Database. It, it tells you everything you ever wanted to know and didn't care to know about every movie, every episode that's ever been made. And if the first couple of episodes are like a seven or an eight, you're like, oh, this might be good, but if the last episode's like a six, like, I ain't watching that, because clearly they didn't know how to tie up and end the story. But when I saw the ratings for The Diplomat, it's this new political drama that came out on Netflix, um, the ratings got better with each episode, right? It started at a seven, seven, which already has my attention, but it ended at an eight, seven. Okay, that's the kind of show I want to watch because I know it's going to end well. And the same is true in some extent of our own lives. We live with so much worry and anxiety over the uncertainty of what lies ahead and what the future holds. And yet we know how the story ends, don't we? We know how the story ends because God's told us. It's right here in Scripture. We know how the story ends. And the beginning of the story, right, those first two episodes, they are really good, aren't they? Um, if you ever watched that episode, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, uh, real unique episode names, those are good. And then we get to the third episode, and you're like, oh my gosh, where is this going? And the wheels fall off. And the middle, right, it's a big middle. Um, it's not so great. I mean, it's good stories, but it's like, where is this going? But then the last episode. The last episode is a perfect 10. It's a perfect 10 out of 10. And that ending, the ending of that last episode, that should impact the way that we live today, right? Living in light of that ending. And that's what we're going to see this morning as Paul closes this section on the resurrection in his letter to the church in the Greek city of Corinth here in 1 Corinthians 15 with a passage that is all about responding to the resurrection, Responding to the resurrection. There's two parts of this morning's passage. In the first, we're going to see a reminder of our hope in the resurrection, kind of recapping some of what we've already learned in this chapter. And in the second part, we're going to see how we should respond to the reality of our own resurrection, how we should live in light of that ending. And so he begins here with a, a recap, kind of summarizing some of what we, we've already been taught about our own physical bodily resurrection, reminding both them and us of our hope in the resurrection. And, and he begins here, he begins with some good news and some bad news. Uh, anybody have a preference what you want first, good news or bad news? You want the bad news. We always begin with the bad news. That's right. So first the bad news, then the good news. It says in verse 50, I says, I tell you, brothers and sisters, like, I cannot emphasize this enough, that flesh and blood, right, our physical existing body, it cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It, it, it's, it's not allowed in. 
Nor does the perishable, meaning that which dies, inherit the imperishable, that which is eternal. Now, inheritance was a significant idea for the Jewish people. Uh, That idea of inheriting uh, the land that God had promised to Abraham. And yet what we see throughout the rest of Scripture is that God had a much fuller uh, expression in mind. One that was not limited just to the biological descendants of Abraham, one that was not limited just to the small strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea that would be taken by force. Instead, Jesus said that the meek, not the powerful, but the meek shall inherit the earth, all of the earth. He he said that those who follow him will inherit eternal life and that the sheep who follow the voice of the good shepherd, they will inherit a kingdom that had been, been prepared for them all the way back at the foundation of the world. And this kingdom that Jesus is describing, that Paul refers to here, it's not some spiritual realm in some far-off place where we go away to, but a physical realm that that has come from God, a a kingdom that Jesus says is already now at hand. It has already uh, begun to uh, arrive and, and break through, but not yet fully here. And so what Paul's doing is he's reminding them and he's reminding us how our current physical body is incompatible with the kingdom of God. It is incompatible with his promised inheritance that we have been given. And when when two things are incompatible, they they don't work together, do they? They don't fit well together. It's like trying to charge your your newer iPhone with an older iPhone charger, right? That wider, older charger, it's not going to fit in that newer, narrower slot. It's never going to work. Your phone's never going to get a charge. And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about here with our physical body. It is incompatible with the kingdom of God. We're we're never going to gain entry with this body that we have, and here's why. See, the kingdom of God is free of the ravaging effects of sin and death. John, he'll go on to describe it in Revelation as a kingdom. Uh, This kingdom is a place where death and mourning and crying and pain and hopefully allergies uh, shall be no more. Right? Those former things, they will have passed away. Those former things brought on by sin, they will have passed away. They will be no more. But this deadly poison of sin has very much impacted uh, not just our minds and what we think and, and our hearts and what it is that we desire, but our, our physical bodies, our flesh and blood physical bodies, which we learned last week were are sown in dishonor, right? stained by sin, they are, they are sown in weakness, susceptible to disease and decay, and will ultimately perish, ending in, in death, making our current physical body incompatible with the kingdom of God, unfit to gain entrance into our internal inheritance. So that's the bad news, and I'm glad you picked the bad news first. But yet, that bad news, how do we respond to that bad news? What's the alternative? Well, this is why some in the church in the Corinth, they were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. They were, they were denying any sort of physical bodily existence after death because they knew this body was incompatible with the kingdom. They, they retained then some of their former pagan beliefs that the, the physical world is only temporary and inherently evil. 
and our souls entrapped in our bodies, they will be set free and liberated after death. And while they understood the incompatibility problem, they very much misunderstood the solution to the problem. Because if your iPhone dies and your friend hands you the wrong charger, you don't just throw away your iPhone, do you? If you do, throw it away to us. That'd be fine. We'll find a charger. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Here's why our hope is in the resurrection. He says in verse 51, he says, behold. right? He's like, listen up now. If you fell asleep, wake up now. He says, I tell you a mystery. I tell you something wonderful, something we will probably never fully understand or grasp, and that's okay. You remember a couple weeks ago in Ethan's baptism video, uh, I asked him, hey, buddy, what's one of your favorite things about Jesus? You remember what he said? He says, I kind of like the mystery. I like the mystery because we don't know entirely everything. I was like, buddy, you nailed it. You nailed it. You see, I think the Enlightenment, it, in some way, it, it vilified mystery. Uh, it, it vilified miracles and supernatural uh, and things beyond our ability to comprehend. And we lost a lot of beauty and allure about the mystery of God. And instead, we, we like to put God under a microscope to be studied and to be analyzed. But the mystery of the resurrection, Paul says, is that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Jesus and Paul, throughout Scripture, they, they refer to our immediate existence after death as a, as a type of sleep. Jesus even saying that uh, he's going to go away to prepare a temporary resting place for us to sleep in that intermediate state following our death as we await our own resurrection. But we won't all sleep, he says, because when Christ returns, while, while many will have died, some will still be alive. They will still be very much awake and living in a body that is still incompatible with the kingdom of God. Yet everyone who is in Christ, he says, whether they are dead or alive, sleeping or awake, will have their physical body changed upon his return. And their body's not going to be taken away. Their, their body's not going to be thrown away. No, our body will be transformed. It will be made compatible with the kingdom of God because God's response to sin's corruption of his once very good creation, including our physical bodies, it's not to destroy it, but to restore it, isn't it? Not to throw it away, not to toss it away like it was never any good, but to restore it to the way it was in this once very good beginning. And that change, he says, it's going to take place in an instant, in a moment, he says, in the blink of an eye, the smallest conceivable measurement of time, in the, in the blink of an eye, the, the twinkling of an eye. And this change is going to take place at the last trumpet in a, a phrase symbolic throughout Scripture of, of victory. At the end of this present evil age, on the, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, the day of our resurrection. And when that trumpet sounds, when Christ returns, when the dead are raised, our resurrected body, he says, it will be imperishable. It will be eternal. And we will forever be changed. And Paul, he continues to correct this misunderstanding some had of a, of a disembodied spiritual eternal existence, saying here in verse 53, he says, for this perishable body 
It must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Our, our body's clothing is, is worn out. It's tattered and torn. Uh, we've got holes in our jeans, and I don't mean the cool pre-ripped jeans where you bought them that way, that your mom doesn't understand why you paid money for ripped jeans. You got a pair. I got a pair. But rather than throwing that whole thing away, rather than throwing the wardrobe away, uh, we're going to get a new wardrobe. We're going to get that perfectly custom tailored suit that fits just right, not off the rack, right? Fit just right for you or, or whatever that outfit in your closet that you wish you had was. One that fits right, one that, that's never going to wear out, one that's never going to go out of style. And, and that, that perfectly tailored outfit that we are going to put on that our resurrected body is going to be clothed in is the image of the man of heaven, Paul said last week in verse 49, the, the image of Christ. And as we enter into our promised inheritance, the, the kingdom of God, that kingdom having come on earth as it is in heaven, that is our hope in the resurrection. That is how the story ends. That's why it is a perfect 10 out of, not 9.9, .9, a unanimous 10 out of 10. And that hope and that perfect ending, it, it should change the way we live today, shouldn't it? We should live differently knowing what lies ahead, living in light of that ending, as Paul goes on to show us our response to the resurrection. And he shows us three responses here that I want us to look at. And the first response here in verse 54 is that, is that we should rejoice. Right? It, should, it should fill us with joy, overflowing with joy as we express that joy, even in the face of death, even while we are mourning the loss of a loved one, even when we grieve. Why? Because death has been defeated. He says in verse 54 that when Christ returns, the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written by the prophet Isaiah, that death is swallowed up in victory, right? Our last enemy will have been defeated. It will have been overcome. It will, it will be no more. No, no trace of it left. No crumbs left when it gets swallowed up. And what, what Paul's doing, he's referring here to a line in Isaiah 25, uh, which is an oracle describing that perfect last episode. And he says in that episode, he begins by saying, we're going to be praising God for who he is and all the wonderful things that he's done. And then we're going to praise God for all that he's promised to do. And he describes in, in Isaiah 25 a, a feast that he's going to host for us. Not a potluck. He's providing everything. He's, he's going to provide rich food and well-aged wine, it says, as he swallows up death from the earth, wiping away tears from all of their faces. Does that phrase sound familiar from earlier? And on that day, on that day, all the people of the earth will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and let us rejoice in his salvation. And so rather than waiting until that day, we rejoice on this day because of that day, don't we? To the point Paul goes on to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Right? 
death, where, where's your sting? He's, he's using the words of the prophet Isaiah as his own, and he, he's taunting death, basically. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrased. He's like, who got the last word now, death? Who, who's afraid of you now? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf, death? It's like he's saying, na, 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 na. Right? And then in the background, they're chanting, overrated. <laughs> like death's going down. But here's the thing. You may, not have, you may have jumped the gun in the student section back in college. We can't chant that until the victory's certain, can't we? Guess what? We can chant that. But sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves. Like, but think of this. The Blackhawks don't play Chelsea Dagger when the other team scores a goal, do they? I mean, if they do, someone's getting fired. I can tell you that. And we don't sing Go Cubs Go after a loss. No, we do not. We just simply pack up and go home. But, but we sing Go Cubs Go after the loss. We, we wave the W flag because the victory is certain. In that case, because it's already happened now because we know it will have happened. And yet death still bites, doesn't it? Our body will succumb to death unless Jesus comes back first. And yet what he says here is that death has lost the sting of sin. Sin has lost the power it once held over us through the law because Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Paul writes in Galatians. Draining death of its deadly poison by absorbing that venom himself, absorbing the effects of sin and suffering the punishment for sin on the cross himself, dying our death, but then defeating Death through his own resurrection. And so we rejoice because death has been defeated. But we don't only rejoice, we also give thanks. Like just as we are filled with joy, we are filled with gratitude because we share in Christ's victory over death. Right? His victory is our victory. He says in verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You, um, you all remember back in 2016, um, we would say things like, we won the World Series. We still say things like that. Uh, truth is, though, we, we didn't win anything. As far as I know, not one of us here played a single inning that whole season. Maybe in our lifetimes, we never played an inning for the Cubs. But yet we still, we still won, didn't we? We're grateful for that victory except for the Sox fans. We, we shared in that victory, even the Sox fans, a little bit. And the same is true of Christ's victory over death and of his resurrection. We are grateful because we share in his victory as though it is our own. We share in his resurrection as though it is our own. That's exactly what Paul would later write to the church in Rome, saying, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, if we are in Christ, our old self having died, born again in Christ, we shall most certainly be united with him in a resurrection just like his. And that ending should change the way that we view this life. Knowing we're going to live through some rough episodes in life, aren't we? Some of you are in one of those right now. Some of those episodes that are like a three out of four or three or four stars. And I'm not talking three or four stars out of five. I'm talking like three or four stars out of ten. 
those episodes you would just assume skip past, days when we're suffering, days when we go without something we deeply desire, days when we feel lost and alone, rejected and beat up, and we're not sure what tomorrow is going to bring. But even then, we not only rejoice, but we give thanks for all that God has given us, filled with gratitude that we share in Christ's victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, because of the hope we have in the resurrection, because of the joy Christ's victory brings us, because of the gratitude we have knowing that we share in Christ's victory over death, we should respond accordingly, living in light of that end, he says, by being steadfast and immovable, right? Standing in the truth of the gospel and holding fast to the good news that we believe that he said in the opening two verses. Not overcome by our doubts, we will have doubts, but not overcome by our doubts, but confident that God will do everything he promised to do, Amen. Not swayed by those who have rejected God, who have reimagined God in their own image, or who have rewritten the story the way they want it to go, but certain of how the story ends and of the life that awaits us on the other side of death, that the grass truly is greener on the other side in the kingdom of God. Luther, he writes, that he prophesies a future thing still not experienced as if they were history in order that he may make us as certain as he is, keeping our eyes fixed upon that beautiful picture of what is to come. And that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith, the writer of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for, knowing that God can, because he is all-powerful, knowing that God will, because he is faithful, it is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen, but the things heard, the things read, the things that we know to be true. And therefore, as a result of this, we are to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, giving our all, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, it is not useless, it is not wasted. He, he's saying that we should work hard, that we should do what we do well because our labor is not in vain. Our work is not wasted. What we do in this life matters. And about now, this is when we start to think that um, when he says something like the work of the Lord, he's clearly talking to pastors. He's clearly talking to those in seminary, those who work in the church vocationally. He, he's talking to the professionals here. We think that, or we think he's only talking about our, our church lives, right? That, that, that sacred spiritual part of our lives. Yeah, no, that's, that's not at all what he's referring to here. He's not drawing some sacred, secular divide, which, by the way, doesn't exist. He's not comparing or contrasting your work for God to your work for your employer, to your work, to your family and community. He's not saying to abound in this type of work and the rest, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's all going away anyway. No, he's talking about the entirety of your labor, of all you do in carrying out your vocation, whatever that might be. 
carrying out your role in the creation mandate given to us in Genesis 1 to care for creation and continue in the act of creation. And that's true whether you are a, a teacher or a doctor or an engineer. That is true whether you are a designer or a, a server in a restaurant or a warehouse worker. That's true if you are a parent or a spouse or a student in school. Abounding in that work, working hard, doing it well, doing it all to glorify God, doing it fairly, doing it ethically, knowing that it matters, all of it, and that what will be what is good will last. It will continue. He, he's saying, live this life in a way that brings beauty to the brokenness of our world. Beauty brought about by your everyday life. Beauty that lasts on into eternity. As N.T. Wright says in his book on the resurrection, he says, what is done in the Lord, in the present, it will last on into God's future. And that can only be true if God is set on renewing and restoring his once very good creation, isn't it? If we were to simply be transported out of here, if this world was to simply be destroyed, why would any of it matter? But his kingdom having come on earth that is as in heaven, it matters. Think about that. Think about what it is that God has invited us into, to participate in. He's invited us to participate in the renewal of creation. We don't have the power within us to do this on our own. That's not what he's saying. But he's invited us to take a part in this, to play a role in this, contributing to what it is that makes that last episode so perfect. See, the resurrection matters because this world and all of creation matters. It matters to God. And if it matters to God, it should matter to us, shouldn't it? So work hard. Work hard, abounding in the work of the Lord, doing what you do well, bringing beauty to the brokenness with every lesson plan you write with every patient you see, with every really boring Zoom call you hop on, man, do the Zoom call to the glory of God, amen? Amen. Every creative project you take on, every customer that you sit with, every box you unload, do it to the glory of God, amen? amen. Every diaper you change, every decision you make as man and wife, and every test you take, do it what? To the glory of God. Because your labor is not in vain. What you do matters. Wherever it is that you do it, whoever it is that you do it for, it is not in vain. It is not wasted. I want to close with these words from N.T. Wright from his book, For All God's Worth. I'm like, if you don't believe Paul, if you don't believe me, you don't believe Luther, maybe you'll believe Tom, because um, he would say this in a very elegant British accent that I'm not going to try. But he writes, the message of the resurrection is that this present world matters, that the problems and pains of this present world matter, that the living God has made a decisive bridgehead into this present world with his healing and all-conquering love. 
And that in the name of this strong love, all the evils, all the injustices, and all the pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won the day. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He says, make no bones about it. Christ's resurrection was the first great answer to that prayer. So how are you going to respond to the reality of the resurrection? To the reality of knowing how this ends in your own resurrection? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.